This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Journalism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, an instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State, and I am delighted to be joined today by Caitlin Petrie, an assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers University and author of All the News That's Fit to Click, How Metrics Are Transforming the Work of Journalists, which is published in September 2021 by Princeton University Press. Caitlin, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's uh, start off, if you wouldn't mind, just talking a little bit about your background and how you became interested in this topic of newsroom metrics. Sure. So before I went to graduate school, I um, spent two and a half years working at a company that did public relations and strategic communication, um, mostly for progressive nonprofit organizations. And so um, much of my day-to-day work for that company was pitching. Um, So pitching journalists, calling them, emailing them, just haranguing them basically on behalf of our clients, these nonprofits, um, to try to get them to cover various things that, that our client organizations were doing. And in the process of um, trying to learn how to be a PR person, trying to learn how to pitch, I um, was not very good at pitching, but I became very fascinated with this notion of um, news judgment and what it meant to decide that something was newsworthy, what it meant to decide that something should be brought to an audience of um, thousands of people or millions of people in some cases. And so... I kind of became fascinated in the course of that job with trying to reverse engineer journalistic judgment. How do journalists make these decisions? What are the factors that go into it? And um, then when I uh, left that job and went to graduate school to a sociology PhD program, that interest sort of stayed with me. And I started thinking that it was a bit paradoxical because on the one hand, journalists seem to me to have this enormous power to be able to say, you know, this belongs in the New York Times and this doesn't make the grade. Um, But on the other hand, I knew at the time, this was around 2009, 2010, and the journalism and news industry was really in economic crisis. And so journalists had this power, but at the same time, they were being crushed by these economic forces um, that were really putting some strong limitations on how they exercised this uh, power of news judgment. And one of the manifestations of those economic pressures that they were facing were metrics. So all of a sudden, um, not all of a sudden, it was more of a gradual progression than that, but but you did see this sort of increasing um, ability with the tracking affordances of networked digital media to be able to know a lot more about audience behavior and audience response to content than had ever been possible before. And that data was filtering into newsrooms at the time and, um, and starting to really play a role in shaping journalistic judgment. And so I just became really interested in how, how that process was playing out. 
And and in your your book, you you look at how this plays out in the New York Times and at at Gawker Media, and and we'll we'll talk about those in in a minute here. But really, the the main character of your book, so to speak, is a, a mm-hmm. company called Chartbeat, um, which is the provider of these these analytics and these metrics to newsrooms. For those uh, listeners who are not familiar with Chartbeat, can you just tell us a little bit about? you know, what it, what it does, what it provides, and perhaps what it doesn't provide to newsrooms. Absolutely. Yeah. So Chartbeat um, is a tech startup. Um, It was founded in 2009 and Chartbeat kind of came on the scene of analytics or metrics um, at a very particular moment and presented itself in a particular way. And so up to that point, um, news organizations were starting to use data about audiences uh, that were gathered from digital sources, but mostly um, that data had was co- from companies that had originally designed analytics tools for an e-commerce context. Um, so you know, you're trying to get someone to buy something and do they click on the ad and then do they go from the ad to look at the product page and then do they finally click buy, right? Um, that was the, the initial form of digital analytics that existed. Um, and then some of those tools had been sort of repurposed by newsrooms in, at that point. So Charpy comes along. 2009, 2010, uh, 2011, and says, well, we're also an analytics company, but we're different. Um, and we're different in two respects. So, And these were both absolutely crucial to kind of what Chartbeat was selling to newsrooms. So the first respect that they kind of distinguished themselves from what had existed um, was that they were going to be specifically designed for newsrooms, um, for use by journalists, um, for use, yeah, for use by journalists. And so so that was really different than, you know, Google Analytics or something like that, which was sort of a one-size-fits-all analytics tool that then could be used by newsrooms but was not designed with them in mind. Chartbeat comes along and says, no, we've made this tool for you, for journalists to use in, in making editorial decisions. Um, so that was really distinct. And then the second thing that Chartbeat had that was a really distinctive feature was that it was a real-time analytics tool. So most of the tools that had existed um, to that point uh, that were being used in newsrooms sort of tentatively were historical analytics tools, which means you can look back and, you know, get a snapshot, basically a static snapshot of here's what our page views were last month. Um, Here's what our page views were in December, right? Um, And so on and so forth. But Sharpie comes along and says, we've made this tool for you as journalists. And because the news business is so fast moving and the newsroom is fast moving, you need a real-time tool. So you can see how many people are looking at your story right at this very second. And you can see as that number rises and falls literally by the second. Um, I think there was about a 15-second delay. So it was was really um, quite unique at the time. And now there are a bunch of competitors. But at the time, they came into the market and they really dominated the news analytics market by offering kind of a tool that had been designed with journalists in mind and offered them that real-time picture of their traffic. So, you know, you, you mentioning that Chartbeat is a startup company got me thinking about sort of the, the playbook of startups, if you will, where they sometimes come in and they like to say that they disrupt an industry or, you know, what, what that means sometimes is they like exploit or expose vulnerabilities or weaknesses and then use them to, to their advantage to, to profit from it. I mean, was, was, is there an element of that here with, with Chartbeat seeing what you described at the beginning of these changes coming to newsrooms, they, how to grapple with the new digital reality and the sort of financial picture that came along with that? 
That's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I think it was a moment of a feeling of extreme vulnerability in the news industry at that time, right? We're talking again about um, kind of the end of the aughts and moving into the 2010s and um, the future of many news organizations was, was extremely uncertain. It was a very tumultuous time. And so I think, you know, Charpie came in and one of the things that they presented themselves as offering was, you know, we'll put you in better touch with what your audiences want. Um, but that was something that all analytics companies could s- sort of say. And that was something that journalists felt had very ambivalent feelings about. Like, yeah, I kind of want to know what my audiences want, but I also don't want my audience to be dictating my news judgment, right? Because again, the news judgment was such a central piece of their professional identity. Um, so Chartbeat said, well, we can provide you with this data about what your audiences want. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're going to allow you to still exercise your news judgment. We understand what it is to be a journalist. We understand that you know best in terms of your news judgment. Um, and so, you know, we're offering you this ability to to make more money, but also preserve your sense of professional integrity. And um, so I think that they it, re- it was a message that resonated at the time because of these feelings of anxiety and vulnerability that were ricocheting through the journalism industry and this notion that, well, yeah, we need to kind of think through ways to better appeal to audiences and get more traffic, but we also don't want to sell our souls in the process. Um, and Sharpie really tapped into those ambivalent feelings in their marketing. Um, but I will say, you know, I spent six months hanging around Sharpie's offices um, and sitting in on meetings and interviewing folks there. And the, the word exploit, I'm not sure, because I think, you know, what I what I saw there over and over is that the folks who were working there, uh, many of them really did deeply care about journalism and were very concerned about what was going to happen to um, the news business. So, you know, it, in terms of intention, uh, I don't think the intention was to exploit this moment of vulnerability, but I do think that um, it was a message that Sharpie was offering that was very well designed to fit into or like assuage some of these concerns that journalists were having. Yeah. And, and on that point about uh, newsroom norms, uh, one of the, the institutions you, you look at was the New York Times. Um, how did that, how did those, those conversations about news judgment and sort of the, the hierarchy of the, the, the editors and like the layers of editors and all of that. How did yeah. that play out? And, you know, in contrast to what, what Charpie was providing. Yeah. Uh, so the times was um, the time when I was there and doing interviews, there was a really interesting moment for the times because they were um, certainly had a robust digital presence, but there was still a notion, um, which I think has subsided somewhat since, that the print edition was still the crown jewel, right? Like that was the, that was the, um, the nexus of prestige in that organization. And the way that the newsroom was organized at that time was, was a very print model of um, organization, which was that it was very hierarchical. Um, You know, one person I interviewed at the Times compared it to a military structure where you have the generals and the lieutenants and um, and there's a chain of command, right? And and so that was one of the reasons that Chartbeat uh, and analytics in general, not just Chartbeat, the Times had several analytics tools, um, was very controversial at the beginning because 
you know, editors had been kind of the ultimate arbiters of newsworthiness of where a story should be placed, uh, both in the print edition, but also on the homepage and, um, and what should get more play and what should get a follow up story and all these things, right? Editors had been the arbiters of all of those types of decisions. And then along comes all this data. And when reporters who are below editors in the chain of command have access to that traffic data, all of a sudden they have an alternative yardstick by which they can approach an editor and say, yeah, but look, like my story is doing really well. It's getting a lot of clicks. Therefore, you know, let's put it on the homepage. Let's give it more play. And I found when I interviewed editors at the time, at the, at the times, they were they didn't like that, right? They didn't like that there was all of a sudden going to be this alternative way that reporters could sort of assess um, the news value of their stories and use it to challenge editors' judgments. Um, and so one of the things that the Times had done at the time was that they had restricted access to analytics such that um, reporters actually couldn't see them at all. Editors had access to Chartbeat. Reporters had no access to Chartbeat. They wouldn't know how many clicks or unique visitors or anything like that their stories had gotten. Um, and one of the reasons for that was really to um, keep the hierarchical power structure and decision-making structure of the times intact. But there was, a, you describe it as, as a black market, I think, where people would do <laughs> things like look over each other's shoulders or, you know, make like side deals to get access to this information. Right? Yeah. Yes. So, um, right. So this kind of hierarchical restricted access to analytics was relatively short-lived at the times. That's not the way the organization works anymore. And one of the reasons that it became not feasible was because there did emerge this kind of clandestine ways of accessing traffic data. Um, and I write about various means that reporters had for doing that in the book. Um, but I think it's, you know, in, including, uh, well, I'm, I'm buddies with this web producer and he can see it and he tells me, you know, what, what traffic my story's gotten and stuff like that. Um, some of them had kind of accidentally through like a technical glitch gotten access to Chartbeat and they just kind of didn't tell anyone uh, so that they could keep looking at it. I think it speaks to a broader truth, which I also write about in the book, which is that analytics are incredibly compelling. I mean, they are really fascinating in a way, especially when they're real time, because I don't know if you've ever looked at the Chartbeat dashboard or for those listeners who have never seen it, but you're really watching this this kind of hovering needle that's going back and forth, that's showing how many people are coming and going to your story, right? And you're, um, you're watching rankings of stories like shift as people come and go to them and and stuff like that. And so it's it's almost mesmerizing. And um, there was a real interest and a hunger at the times for getting access to that sort of privileged information um, that was presented in such a visually compelling way. Right. And and that really, that sort of, that, that hunger really manifested itself at Gawker, where, you know, people were... were um, I think it's okay to say that they were they were addicted in some respects to this information. It, it it struck me as similar to so you know I have not used Chartbeat, but I think about you know that dopamine rush that you get when someone likes one of your social media posts. It was it was like that, but also part of your job. So there was like this professional compulsion to look at this information. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I I you know I started when I from the moment I started kind of interviewing journalists about um and particularly at Gawker about their relationship to analytics and asking them to describe you know well how do you feel about analytics kind of in broad terms at the start of the interview almost invariably like one of the first words I would hear would be addicted um and you know there's there's a lot of debate in research circles about whether people's 
compulsive behaviors around digital technologies constitute the definition of addiction. Um, and I'll leave that aside, but I did think it was very striking that so many journalists use that, that term, right? Um, and, and they really felt like they compulsively checked Chartbeat. Um, they were kind of compulsively following their numbers and trying to make sense of them. And then the other thing that was very striking at the beginning um, of my interviews at Gawker was that they felt so emotional about their analytics. So many of them talked about how they sort of felt like their moods uh, stood or fell for the day, depending on how um, their traffic was doing. And, and that was really uh, jarring to me at first and and made me very interested in this question of, well, how are all of these analytics influencing people's, um, you know, not just their journalistic output, but also their working conditions, right? What is their lived experience of work? What is it like to go and work at a place like Gawker every day? And what is the kind of toll that that takes on you? And what role do metrics play in that? Right. And, and I mean, it was, there's also this um, they're sort of figuring out how to write content that's going to go viral, how to like engineer that. Um, and, and so can you just, just talk a little bit more about how, what role Chartbeat and the, the, the metrics played in terms of like the day-to-day content decisions of, you know, what types of articles would post and even like the, the cadence at which articles were posted? Sure. So, um, yeah, certainly there was a notion that um, at Gawker that you had to have something new up on the site kind of in a constant clip. Um, and so different editors at different sites there, because at the time Gawker Media had, I think, about eight core titles. Um, and so different editors at each of those eight core titles had different ways of doing this. Some like to schedule kind of way out in advance as much as they could. Others were a little bit more like uh, ad hoc, throwing things together. Um, but I think there, and there was a notion that, you know, as long as you were um, meeting your targets and as long as you were kind of having new stuff on the site that however you did it was, was, okay with management. Um, but yeah, certainly there's a notion that you kind of always have to be generating something novel. Um, and one of the reasons for that was because, you know, it's, it was, it's actually kind of tricky sometimes to know how to get more traffic to a story. It's not actually a completely reliable formula where people just, journalists just know exactly what they have to do. And then it's a question of, well, do I want, do I feel comfortable doing that, you know, in terms of my professional norms? Um, in some cases, that's what's going on. But in other cases, journalists, at, even at Gawker, where they're kind of immersed in traffic, were very flummoxed about, well, how do I actually get more people? Like, I'm, this is really ambiguous. I'm actually not sure how to go about doing it. Um, and so one of the rel- most reliable ways to do it um, in that uh, milieu of uncertainty was just post more, right? Um, Gawker sites had big audiences kind of at the baseline. So anything you put up on a Gawker site is going to generate, you know, a few thousand unique visitors, which was the metric that they most cared about. And so just post more, write more, right? And that was one of the biggest effects of Chartbeat on the work process was that it was this sort of work speed up. Um, so just work harder, work more, right? Because anything you post, you're going to get um, at least a couple thousand unique visitors, right? It doesn't even matter what it is. It's a post on a Gawker site. It's going to do a certain level of baseline traffic. Um, and so that was something I saw a lot, which was that um, metrics are very good at extracting this kind of increased worker productivity. They're very effective as a labor management technique because they do that so so effectively, because essentially what journalists do um, to try to boost their traffic is 
they work harder and harder and harder. Yeah. So the people at Chartbeat have to know this, right? <laughs> How the and I mean, there were stories being written about this in the media at the time. So how, if at all, did they take these factors into consideration, whether it was the increased work output or the this feeling of, of compulsively needing to check the tool all the time? Did they attempt to counter that at all, either in the product itself or in the way that they presented it from from a marketing perspective? I think certainly in the way that they presented it from a marketing perspective. Um, so, you know, there there certainly is, as much as journalists felt um, kind of addicted to analytics, there could also be these feelings that I write about in the book um, of kind of disenchantment, being demoralized, feeling exhausted, um, you know, feeling like this, um, as one of the um, writers at Gawker put it that I interviewed, like, this is a game that's endless. The traffic game is endless, right? Because any high score you get just becomes the next traffic target that you then have to beat. Um, and so, you know, he said, um, he said, there's no time where you can close your laptop and say, chart beats good, our numbers are good, you know, we're ready to go, we're done with traffic for the day. Um, and that was a very striking thing for him to say to me, right? There's no time when you can close your laptop and feel like your work is done for the day. That is, um, that is a, you know, a, a type of working condition that can really lead to burnout um, and feelings of disenchantment and demoralization. And so Charpie, I think, was aware that those feelings could could be the flip side of this, oh, we're so addicted to Chartbeat, it's so fun to watch our numbers rise, right? Um, and so in their marketing, they did, I found, I mean, in the design of the tool itself, build in some moments for um, what I call kind of re-enchantment, right? Something to make the tool feel um, magical or just take away that sort of like relentlessness of the rationalized chase for traffic. Um, and one of the ways that they did that that I write about in the book is the broken dial. So Chartbeat had this um, kind of speedometer-like dial um, in a very prominent place on the dashboard where you could see with a little needle um, and you could see how many uh, unique or concurrent visitors, how many people were on your site at that moment. And then you could see the needle kind of quiver and go up and down depending on, you know, as people came to the site or left. Um, and so Chartbeat built in this feature that if you, uh, as a news organization, surpassed your kind of preset maximum cap of visitors, um, that the dial would break, and that's what they called it. So all of a sudden, you kind of wouldn't see by how much you'd surpassed your cap. You would just see that you had gotten more um, than you had ever expected to get, um, and the dial was broken. Um, and Sharpie designed the dial to be able to break in that way because it was this sort of fun moment where... Um, you know, all of a sudden you exit the realm of this kind of quantification and you say, okay, we broke the dial, we, you know, and that that would be kind of one of the moments where you could uh, close your laptop and say, okay, we broke the chartbeat dial today. We maxed out, you know, our chartbeat dial. And so we can feel really good about what we did. Um, so they did kind of try to, in the design of the tool, build in these little moments of um, where you could feel the sort of transcendent exuberance. Um, but, but by and large, I would say that is not the daily experience of using real-time analytics. Right. And and you, you mentioned before sort of the uncertainty. Um, I, I think perhaps 
more at the the times reporters, even those who had access to the tool, struggled with how to make sense of of what they were seeing, like what's good, what's not good, what you know, how how can I even begin to make sense of of this information that's in front of me? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think we started seeing, and around the time that Charpeed's getting really big, right? You have. Um, what I call the emergence of the Moneyball mindset. So, uh, you know, the movie Moneyball, come, the book came out several years before, but then the movie comes out um, around that time. And, um, you know, and it's about, oh, well, the Oakland A's, you know, they were this really cash poor base underdog baseball team that used essentially analytics, right, about players um, to find undervalued players and um, get them on the team. And then they did really well, right? So the idea was um, the Moneyball mindset is kind of using analytics to exploit these hidden pockets of value um, and excel, right? Even when you maybe don't have as many resources as some of your competitors. And so the Moneyball mindset starts to spread uh, from baseball to political campaigning, and then all of a sudden it's everywhere. Um, and you know, people are saying, well, we have to Moneyball journalism through analytics, right? Um, and one of the things that that quickly became obvious in my research is um, journalism is really different from baseball. <laughs> it's really different from political campaigning or other fields where the Moneyball mindset has has kind of produced these great effects because. In baseball, you have one goal, right, which is to win and get as many more runs on the other team in nine innings. And there's this also universal agreement of when you've achieved that goal. Um, you know, everybody agree. You may disagree with a call that the umpire made about a particular hit or something like that, but you nobody disagrees that the, per, the team with more runs at the end of nine innings is the winner. Whereas in journalism it's much more complex than that, right? Because there's more than one goal. Different publications have um, different goals from each other. One publication can have, you know, three or four different objectives that they're going for that are really qualitatively distinct. Like um, many of them are commercial publications, so they're trying to make money, but they're also trying to serve this civic purpose, you know, to be part of what journalism's normative mission is, and those in and of themselves are difficult to adjudicate between. Um, so there's not one goal, there's multiple missions in journalism, and it's net clear when you've achieved uh, a particular one of those missions or not. Um, and so all of a sudden you have this kind of moneyball mindset that tries to apply itself to journalism via analytics, but it doesn't work out that way because it's so much more complex, and for that reason, journalism metrics are much harder to interpret. Right. So you would have these situations and, and folks would tell me at the times when I would do interviews there, you know, well, yeah, we know that a story about <clears throat> Afghanistan is going to get fewer clicks than a story about, you know, Kim Kardashian. Sure. But how many fewer clicks should it get? And so what should we compare the story to Afghanistan, the story about Afghanistan to, right? What is the right apples to apples comparison there? Should we compare it to all stories about Afghanistan? Should we compare it to all stories about Afghanistan by that particular reporter? Should we compare it to all stories about Afghanistan by that reporter that came out on a Tuesday at the same time? Um, but even then, you have factors outside of your control that can muddy the waters, right? Such as, well, what was the news mix that day? Um, you know, stories can get buried um, even if they would normally do quite well in traffic just because something bigger happened in the news that distracted people's attention. And so so all of that complexity um, came together to create a situation where, you know, you would editors at the Times would see, well, this story got this many views. Okay, like what does that mean, right? And that uncertainty of how to make sense of that um, and what to do in the face of that information. There was one reporter at the Times, um, he told me this story 
where he said, my best performing story ever was the story that I wrote on my subway commute home. I wrote it in seven minutes and it did crazy traffic, like unbelievable traffic. And, and he had access via a friend in the newsroom to, to see his traffic. That's the only reason he knew. Um, but he said, you know, I cannot figure out what it was about this story. I have no idea. And I have no idea what to do based on that information. So I think there really was this uncertainty, um, certainly at the times and even at Gawker as well, where traffic was so much more talked about um, or present in the newsroom of how do we make sense of these numbers, right? And it was not as clear as um, it was for the Oakland days in Moneyball. Right. But have have news organizations gotten better at that in, in the years since, since you were doing your research with them? To some extent, yes. Um, you know, I think as metrics have become more firmly kind of embedded in the organizational culture and the day-to-day labor of news organizations, um, Certainly, the more that you are immersed in this data, the more that you develop a sense of, oh, here's what I would expect, you know, XYZ story to do, and here's what I would expect ABC story to do um, in terms of traffic. And so, you you know, that almost becomes part of what news judgment is now. Traffic becomes factored into that. Um, So certainly, that's been internalized a little bit. But I think there's still a lot of... um, a lot of ambiguity there. And I think that that will always be the case because, again, of um, journalism just inherently having these multiple missions, multiple aims it's trying to achieve, and then the sheer mix of variables um, that that cause a certain story's traffic to do whatever it does, right? And I mentioned kind of time of day and the reporter and the topic and all that before. One of the things I didn't mention that is one of the most, the biggest sources of uncertainty is the platforms, right? And how um, so much of news distribution happens on the basis of these platform algorithms at companies like Facebook and um, and Google and so on. And and that's something that um, news organizations, A, have no control over, B, have very little knowledge of how those algorithms work, um, and C, the algorithms change constantly. Um, and so it's really a moving target, right? Um, and all of those, you know, the platforms um, and that big question mark is a whole other thing that determines traffic and that, and that journalists have very little control over and very, and very limited understanding of because the platforms don't don't let them in. And so, um, so I would say to answer your question, it's gotten somewhat less ambiguous, but not that much. Right. And this, this, some of these tensions also speak to sort of the, the higher level framework that you set out in the book of, you know, trying to situate or orient journalists somewhere between professional and artistic. So if it was purely professional, you know, you could really optimize for growth or optimize for, you know, whatever you wanted to, to optimize for. Uh, if, but if it was purely artistic, you might not care at all, or you might care far less. Although I think in, in today's economy, you know, many artists have to pay a lot of attention to their, their fans and followers and subscribers and all that. But um, how, how do you sort of situate that kind of, you know, bigger level question with the more specifics that you you found through the the course of these interactions so i think one of the concepts that's orbiting around that question is the is the issue of autonomy right so the notion that well what does it mean to have 
autonomy as an artist? What does it mean to have autonomy as a mathematician, right? What does it mean to have autonomy as a journalist? Um, and one of the tricky things, so in, in sociology, which is my kind of home discipline where I got my PhD, um, there's a sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu, and he offers this notion of autonomy that is basically, well, autonomy is when um, someone is situated in their field in such a way that they're free from the pressures of the market. Um, and they're also free from the pressures of kind of coercive, um, uh, you know, state power. And so they're kind of independent of these external pressures, right? And they can operate according to a value system that is internal to their field, um, such that, you know, and, and peer review, I think in academia sort of reflects this, right? So um, if you're a mathematician, you care about what other mathematicians think and how they evaluate your work, but you don't necessarily need to have Chartbeat um, to be, at least not yet, <laughs> to be evaluating uh, your job performance, right? Um, and that's how we define autonomy for a mathematician. I think with journalism, that particular definition of autonomy as being free from these, you know, free from the judgment of these external audiences is really tricky because journalism is an inherently public-facing profession. Um, you know, if if you journalists care a lot about what other journalists think, but if they only care about that, that's a problem, right? Because their whole ostensible goal is or should be to communicate with a public um, and to help facilitate um, and uh, a, a healthy democratic public that's flourishing, right? And so if nobody is reading your articles uh, and you're a journalist, you know, if your chart beat meter is zero, that's not great, right? Um, it's not certainly not great from a business perspective, and it's also not great from a civic perspective in terms of kind of accomplishing your goal as a journalist. And so, um, so I think that's one of the reasons that metrics are so emotional for journalists and so con confusing kind of in terms of what they signify, right? Because if they signify this bearing down of these commercial pressures, um, you know, in the digital age when uh, news organizations are under such economic stress, well, then that's a threat to news judgment. But if metrics signify how much interest is this public having in what I'm doing and how good of a job am I doing at getting my news out there um, and getting it seen and read by members of this public, well, then that's something that they really should be paying attention to. And so um, so I think that the relationship between metrics and professional autonomy for journalists is quite complex um, and something that they were sort of constantly wrestling with. Right. And to that point about autonomy, you know, one of the things that we've seen in the past two, three, four years is the the growth of platforms like Substack and, and Patreon and journalists kind of leaving legacy media organizations to start their own, you know, basically become independent content creators. Um, how do you think about that trend or, you know, that that phenomenon, given, you know, everything you know about what what things were like at the time you were doing this research? I don't want to say that this migration that we've seen of, of writers um, to Substack and Patreon, you know, that that's because of analytics. I think that would be a stretch. I think there's lots of structural things going on there. Um, but I do think that there's something interesting, which is that what metrics have done, one of the things that they've done is they've essentially um, crystallized the way in which um, individual writers at a particular publication have an audience that follows them um, and that that audience is quantifiable, that audience is knowable to a certain extent. Um, 
And that audience can theoretically be detached from the broader publication and brought elsewhere, right? Um, so metrics, if you're a reporter or you're a writer or a columnist, they really convey that to you, that you as an individual have um, an audience, right? That it's not just the New York Times has an audience and I'm a columnist there and so therefore I have an audience, but my audience belongs to the Times. I think what metrics kind of symbolize and put right in front of journalists' faces is, oh no, but I have these people, right? That, that they can be sort of, um, I can think of them as mine to some extent, right? And not only as a connection to the Times. Um, and so if you, can, if, you, if you consider what um, kind of analytics existed in the analog age at a place like the Times, certainly you had um, subscription figures, you know, you had newsstand sales and things like that. Um, but all of those were at the level of measuring the success of the publication as a whole, as a bundle. All of a sudden with um, Chartbeat, you can actually disaggregate that and see um, the performance of each individual writer. And so in some sense, I think there's an individualization of traffic that happens when you have those tools that allow you to get down to the level of the writer um, that then can potentially make someone feel like, oh, I can actually break off on my own, right? Because my audience isn't the same as the New York Times audience. Um, there's overlap there for sure. But I also have, you know, some of these are my people that will come with me and follow me. And I think traffic kind of facilitates that mindset. So um, again, I'm not saying that the presence of metrics in newsrooms is what caused this um, migration to those platforms and these individual newsletters. But I think certainly without that data, it would have been much harder for some of these writers to feel confident and know that they could do that successfully. Right, right. And there's probably a whole other book to be written about the kind of pressures that come from being your own content creator. You're maybe not watching Chartbeat all day, but there's certainly lots of other things you're, you're paying attention to and needing to, to keep track of and much more economically dependent on in some ways than people at, at you know, larger media organizations. Well, absolutely. And I do. And I think you're probably paying quite a lot of attention to your analytics, actually. Um, you know, I would I would love to interview um, folks who have left um, these bigger publications and um, done a Substack or something like that to see how their relationship to analytics has changed, if at all. But I would guess that it, they're they're not saying, oh, I'm on my own now. I don't have to worry about that. And to the contrary, they're probably uh, much even more glued to um, their their Chartbeat app or whatever it is that they're using. Yeah. So how are you preparing your students to to enter this world and, and think about these things? And how should other, you know, journalism communications educators who might be listening to this be be thinking thinking about that? Or is it is it the case that students like just inherently know this already because they have grown up in this environment or is perhaps much more native to them than it even is to, to you or I? Um, certainly, it's part of the latter, right? So they, um, you know, I think that they have my students come in um, with a sense, a couple things, you know, they're, they're journalism and media studies majors, uh, usually that I teach. Um, and so but a lot of them you know, they don't have a very narrow view of what journalism or media career looks like, right? So it's not that they come in saying, like, I want to write um, long-form pieces for The New Yorker. I mean, some of them, I'm sure they would love to do that, a lot of them, but 
Um, but a lot of them have a lot more of a kind of expansive notion of what it means to be uh, producing media um, or producing journalism um, in in this contemporary moment. So um, so that that they get and they understand um, working across platforms, right? Because they do it all the time. So um, you know when I talk about uh, identity construction on social media and things like that, that's just second nature to them. Like, well, here's you know, and they have multiple Instagram accounts, and this one my aunt looks at, but this one is just for me and my friends and stuff like that. Um, and so I think that it's not a stretch for them to imagine kind of transporting that into um, their professional career. Similarly, I think that they also feel a lot of pressure to present themselves in a certain way, to um, kind of build an individual brand. Um, I'm putting that in scare quotes. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. I'm critical of that language and that way of thinking. Um, but but certainly my students are sort of feeling that pressure on themselves constantly. They're constantly thinking about that. Um, how am I going to differentiate myself and how am I going to convey these unique features that are just unique enough, but not too unique or weird uh, to prospective employers. You know, they're constantly under a microscope and they're under a microscope on these variety of different platforms. And so, you know, I think they, they come in, um, I'm thinking particularly of this, this class I teach called Digital Media and Society, um, and they come into that class with a kind of... Um, certainly an intuitive sense at this point of, of how they manage all these technologies. And what I really actually try to do as um, their professor is to help them connect the dots of some of the bigger structural and economic forces um, that are tr trickling down to them and putting these pressures on them um, to present themselves in this certain way, to be you know, legible to these platform algorithms so that they can be visible and things like that, um, to help them connect the dots between, say, the business models of some of these platforms and the pressures that they feel on themselves, right? Um, so we talk a lot about um, platform economics. We talk a lot about, um, you know, surveillance capitalism and, and those sorts of ideas. Um, and so what I really try to do in my classes is instill in them, um, well, they, a lot of them already have it, but um, help them develop a kind of critical mindset to understand um, these pressures that they experience in their budding careers and their personal lives every single day, um, but to understand those as part of a much broader phenomenon um, that has to do with um, certainly the platform economy, the casualization of work and things like that. Um, I, you know, I'm in the position where I don't teach skills classes, so I, I'm not faced with having to um, teach my students how to, you know, go out and try to build a career in media or report news across platforms or things like that. My amazing colleagues do that. Um, but I think, you know, my students are, are very nimble in their way that they shift across um, platforms and, and things. And what I want for them, I think, is to um, be able to pull back and understand, you know, this is, if I feel this pressure or if I feel like I can never have enough traffic to my stories or I didn't, my tweet didn't get enough likes or whatever, um, that this is not my fault, that this is not, you know, there are bigger forces at work here. That's what I want to convey as an educator. Yeah, that's that's a great message and something I think we can all take <laughs> take uh, take Absolutely. that advice, even if we're. I'm talking just... to myself as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so great. What? Uh, what? So I, I hope that folks will will uh, get this this book. And there's certainly lots of other uh, great information there that we haven't had time to to cover today. But um, what are what are you working on on next, Caitlin? Is it an extension of this project? Are you going into a, to a different area? What What's on your plate? Um, I have a couple of uh, things that I'm interested in. So um, one project that is in its very nascent stages um, 
right now is uh, I want to do a project where I look at the rise of um, worker-owned media organizations. Um, so I'm thinking of, uh, in particular, a case study of Defector Media, which is um, essentially a, a new media organization that's made up of um, writers and editors who originally came from Gawker Media, um, most of them from the sports-focused website at Gawker Media that was called Deadspin, um, and then left Deadspin en masse when it was um, kind of owned by uh, this private equity firm. And um, there were a lot of editorial disagreements and a lot of interference and stuff. And essentially, the staff kind of quit, um, resigned in protest to what was going on. And they and some of them started this company, Defector Media, which is a fully um, writer-owned company. Uh, kind of cooperative or collective. I don't know if they would refer to that as that, but certainly a worker-owned media organization. So um, so that's an interesting case study, but that's just one. There are more that are popping up where um, journalists are kind of coming together to try to um, have a different ownership model. And I'm um, interested in researching you know, how do some of these traffic pressures, this feeling of addiction to traffic that I write about in the book, um, this feeling of, you know, work speed up and stuff like that, um, how does this totally different ownership structure that is kind of gaining in prominence um, shape the lived experience of those pressures, if it does at all, right? So I, I genuinely don't know um, what the answer will be, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's, I think, always the sign of a good research question is that you just really don't know what people are going to say to you. So that's one thing that I'm interested in is the rise of these worker-owned uh, media cooperatives and collectives and um, and how the question of um, some of these traffic pressures and labor pressures um, affect them. And then um, another project I'm working on right now is kind of in a different vein. Um, so it's about uh, tech platforms and the role that the tech platforms play in kind of shaping the public sphere. And I had been sort of looking at um, some grant uh, RFPs and things like that in my field, and many of them um, that have to do with platforms and news refer to the role of platforms in the news industry as unprecedented. Um, so when we talk about these tech platforms, there's often a focus on the way in which they are um, completely new and novel and there's never been anything like them before. And in some respects, that's true because the size of Facebook and the scale of Facebook is certainly is unprecedented as a news um, kind of intermediary. But um, in this project, I'm trying to go in a bit of a different direction and push back against that. Uh, kind of narrative that this is unprecedented and look at certain institutions and organizations that historically have played a role um, in the public sphere that is somewhat similar to the one that the platforms are playing now. Um, and so uh, we look at, I'm doing it with a, a co-author, and we look at uh, public libraries as one case study, bookstores, which is a fascinating uh fascinating history as a kind of information intermediary. Um, and then um, our third case study is supermarket magazine racks, uh, which actually weirdly we think has the most parallels to how the platforms currently operate because um, the vast majority of the kind of products in the supermarket have nothing to do with news or the public sphere whatsoever. And then you've got this tiny magazine rack at the front. And then on that news magazine rack, you've got some reputable publications like, you know, regular magazines at the time and, and stuff like that. Um, and then you've got, you know, the weekly world news that's saying that Elvis has been resurrected and spotted in Las Vegas or whatever. Um, and so looking at that, I'm like, well, that's Facebook. <laughs> that's basically uh, an analog version of Facebook. Um, and so, um, so anyway, that project is sort of trying to 
shift our perspective on platforms a little bit um, by looking at some of these um, analogs that are, you know, were pr more prominent in the in the pre-digital age, but certainly played a role in information curation that's um, somewhat similar to the one the platforms are playing now. And how did they do that? And what were the things that they considered while doing that? Yeah, you know, I have been making that weekly world news comparison for years when it comes to talking about misinformation oh and, my gosh, and you yes. know, how it spreads. So I'm I'm so glad that someone is putting that into the into the scholarly world. It's amazing. I mean, I'm so glad to hear that because it's kind of I've become obsessed with supermarket tabloids. <laughs> and in from like, after the 2016 election, it was all I could think about because you know, again, we see this discourse that's you know, fake news is a new problem and. Um, and really, of course, these patently fake stories have been around for decades and decades, um, probably centuries. But um, but there was, you know, there are some differences. There were fewer, there were more contextual cues, right? Um, the newsfeed kind of homogenizes everything aesthetically in a way that, um, you know, the, the supermarket doesn't um, with these different publications. But I think there are really, really interesting parallels there. So I'm glad I'm not alone <laughs> thinking that. Yes. Yeah, so we will uh, put the links to your your website and and your Twitter and all that, so folks can can keep up with those projects as they are forthcoming and get all the information uh, about your book as well. And uh, your book again is all the news that's fit to click: how metrics are transforming the work of journalists. Published by Princeton University Press. Caitlin, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>